I'm so very grateful that John Andrews founded Independence Institute back in 1985. That's only one small chapter in his powerful life defending the Founder's vision of America. He was a submariner, he was Nixon's speechwriter, he was president of the Colorado State Senate, he also founded several other think tanks and wrote many books. This is the audio version of our television show, Devil's Advocate. You can watch that program by going to youtube.com and searching for our channel, IITV. That stands for Independence Institute, or just go to thinkfreedom.org. You're gonna love this discussion. So if there's one man responsible for me never having a real job for the last uh, 25 years, it is my mentor and good friend, John Andrews, who among many other things, founded the Independence Institute. Thank you for talking with me. Great to be with you today, John. And thank you for giving me a job. Would you believe it's been like 24 years ago? You are about to graduate from the apprenticeship program <laughs> and I think you have a wonderful future ahead of you. It's hard to predict what uh, you'll be able to do with those strange mix of talents that you've got, John, but yeah. we, we've enjoyed seeing you as a trainee here at the <laughs> Institute for the last couple of decades. All right, so people know the Independence Institute is out there, and it's been around since 1985, and you created this beast out of, out of nothing. And I know you, you have this lore that it was, you know, this image to create a think tank in the center west to do all these things really were you just trying to trying to get a job what, I, what I, was the independence institute idea i too needed a job uh, john uh, back to the mid 80s so here's reagan entering into his second term in the white house the uh, spirit of the country was uh, ready to look at uh, decentralizing uh, power out to the states from washington dc uh, look at uh, what the Constitution uh, called for to limit the uh, scope of the federal government and empower the states. Uh, and it seems like a different, uh, it seems like ancient times to talk about that because the trend of centralization in Washington and uh, overgrowing the uh, federal government has only relentlessly increased. But the, the atmosphere in the mid 80s is let's put the brakes on. Uh, Reagan had pulled the country out of uh, economic doldrums and was in the process of winning the Cold War. Uh, and uh, his famous uh, observation uh, about the Cold War that uh, we win, the Soviets lose, was, was in the process of being fulfilled uh, abroad. But here in the country, uh, it's all relative, which we, we can get into as we talk. But at, at that moment in the 80s, there was a lot of optimism that we could maybe rebalance the federal system and re-empower the states. So much so that even as the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. was really shaking things up, they had published a very important uh, blueprint for the Reagan administration when Reagan first came in in 81, the mandate for leadership. And now in 85, is Reagan's second term. Heritage is, is really an important center of ideas and constitutional renewal in Washington in different states without knowing that each other was doing it without even knowing each other at all. Uh, Colorado, Washington State, uh, Illinois, and South Carolina, all in 1984-85 said, let's have kind of a baby Heritage Foundation, no affiliation to the Heritage Foundation at all, but just taking that model of a, of a think tank uh, with an action element to it uh, and, and trying to become a counterweight to the uh, 
left liberal consensus dominated in the media uh, and academia and entertainment. Um, in those four states, Colorado being one of them, we, we gave it a go. Gradually, we began to be aware of each other's existence and we began to link up. And out of that is ultimately comes something called the State Policy Network, which you know uh, very well. And it's now represented in all 50 states with well over 50 uh, different membership organizations, 60 the last time I looked. But here we are in the mid 80s. Uh, Colorado's government was growing twice as fast as its economy. Uh, the uh, situation of public education, uh, one could be nostalgic and say in the 80s, you, you had no problems at all, but we thought we had problems because we could see where it would all be going uh, very much in the direction that it has gone to uh, fail its educational mission with the three R's and instead get on an indoctrination uh, track that, uh, that really endangers the very future of our country. So there's budgetary issues, environmental issues, economic issues, transportation and infrastructure issues. It, the, the field was wide open. Nobody was bringing uh, free market, constitutional, fundamental, factual, analytical skills to bear on the problems of Colorado. We uh, had some donated office space and an office park in Golden. Uh, three of us, uh, Dave Devlin and John Andrews and our office manager, Marcia Spukowski, uh, said, let's have a policy institute for Colorado and become like the Heritage Foundation. Why did you call it the Independence Institute? Why wasn't it the Colorado Foundation for Economic Liberty or any other sort of names? What, why independence? Well, I was blessed with a solid education in a Christian private school in St. Louis, John. And uh, my uncle was a congressman. Uh, his, uh, his uncle had been a, a state senator in Michigan. Uh, in my blood was the founding documents of this country, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, uh, ranking in, in, in my scale of values just, just below the scriptures. And, uh, when we came to look for a name for the uh, Independence Institute, what it became the Independence Institute, we wanted to invoke the Declaration of Independence. That's where the, that's where the name came from. We were, I, I should mention, in terms of the early days of the uh, mid-80s, we had um, kind of a, a rocket-boosted launch for our little think tank because previously the same uh, group of players with uh, some financial support from people like the Coors and the late Cortland Dietler, uh, had been an outpost of Hillsdale College in Michigan here in Colorado. Hillsdale's president in those days, the late great George Roach, wanted to have kind of an Aspen Institute of the right and run seminars for business leaders to ground them in the fundamentals of why the market works better than socialism. Uh, we started the Chavano Institute at Hillsdale College for George Roach uh, in 1981 and ran those seminar programs until the time came that the college feeling uh, budgetary pressures and uh, disgruntled alumni and athletic uh, department lobbying decided they couldn't run an outpost in Colorado anymore. That became the opportunity for me and my uh, brother, the late great Dave Devlin, to say let's have uh, this think tank and named it Independence Institute, invoking the Declaration of Independence. Now we think back on 1985, I remember it well, and memory thinks, well, Colorado was, was terrific, everything was great, Reagan is running the country, America is on the rebound. 
Colorado seems to always be on a counter-cyclical calendar politically to the rest of the country. Well put, yeah. And I remember recession here. I remember oil busts. I see remember, through office buildings. See through, yeah. I, uh, I remember it's a great place to take a date in downtown Denver because you could go into one of the skyscrapers and all the floors were empty. So you could, it was a cheap date. You go into any floor and you have this gorgeous view <laughs> and you could have a picnic. And it was, you know, it, it was it was a definitely a cheap date. I also remember there was no choice in uh, school choice. They were all government-run schools. I remember, as you said, the state government and governments were growing at twice the speed of the economy. We had no growth limits on, uh, on, on spending, on taxation. We had a progressive income tax system where most productive people were paying a much higher rate of income tax. It wasn't a flat income tax. The highest rate was 8%. Uh, we had restrictive gun laws. We we had all sorts of things until Independence Institute came along and said, there are some better ways to do this. We should have a taxpayer bill of rights. Your brother-in-law, Dave Devlin, was a champion of charter schools. Uh, we should have a flat tax rate. Barry Paulson did the econometrics to say, let's have a 4.5% tax rate. Well, over a few years, those goals all became reality. Doug Bruce brought us, with a lot of work from independents, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. We had a flat tax rate at 5%, because that's what a Democratic governor would agree to. Um, we had concealed carry laws. We had the charter schools. Uh, we had all these reforms that came in, privatization of, uh, of, of contracted services at RTD, where I got involved. All these things happened because of the one little idea you had to start this organization. And those are great days, John. Um, great summary uh, of the impact that the Institute had very quickly. Uh, part of it was that a Dennis Pole Hill, with his expertise in uh, privatization of government services, a Pam Benigno, with her understanding of school choice, you mentioned Barry Polson, econom economics professor at CU Boulder. Uh, the uh, activism of a Douglas Bruce, who uh, was part of the tax limit movement uh, in California and then transplanted to Colorado and helped to fire that up with help from great uh, soldiers of freedom like Fred Holden. Simply by raising the banner and saying, we're going to be a policy think tank for limited constitutional government and free markets and bottom-up control by the citizens in Colorado, people began knocking on our door. And the, the force multiplier of taking a Dave Kopel with his expertise on Second Amendment uh, rights to defend ourselves with firearms, Barry Polson in the economics area, Pam Benigno doing the school issues, uh, Dave Devlin until we lost him uh, with, with those school choice issues, the whole became more than the sum of its parts by raising the banner and saying, let's gather, let's see how we help each other, let's offer this to donors, let's network with other states. Uh, we, we kind of uh, pushed the, the shavings and the kindling wood together, lit a match to it, and we began to be able to put on bigger and bigger logs on the fire, and it's really never stopped burning. But it was never a partisan organization. It never was an outgrowth of the Republican Party. Oh, not at all. And Some of fact, our earliest leaders on the board were Democrats, John. 
like Miller Hudson, was chairman of the board, had a former state legislator, former state uh, Democratic chairman. Even Dick Lamb was involved at some point, wasn't he? Uh, not, not very actively, but he was a resource that right. we, we knew we could draw upon. And he didn't care that we had our Republican hat on and he had his Democrat hat on. Those hats were set aside. The difference being independence always was, and I'm proud to say always has been, still is, based on principles, not personality, not party. And that's, been, and that's been a difficult thing for the many decades it's been around because there is this gray space between philosophy and the practice of politics. And people love personalities. People love parties. People love uh, electing people. And those are good, important things. But that's a whole different world than trying to get policy-driven successes based on principle. How have you decided how to draw those lines over the years? And for people who don't know, you started your political life as a speechwriter for Nixon. You ended your political life as a Senate president here in Colorado. That's, that's a big swath of, of intellectual work well, and, and real practical political work. And John, I love the Republican Party. I've, I've often argued that uh, the Republican Party, uh, other than the uh, church itself, is the most important organization on earth. Somebody says, Andrews, how are you going to defend that yeah, I was gonna. I'm just going to put that one up, Here, too. Here's how. Um, the United States of America is the best thing that ever happened to human flourishing. Not just freedom, but living, living well. Uh, living uh, a, a, a more civilized life in community together as a human family and individuals having the opportunity to, to fulfill their potential in, in liberty. That's that American success formula is the best thing that ever happened to humankind. The Constitution is what makes that possible. And the one organization that does better than any other, and it's quite imperfect in so doing, is the Republican Party. That's how I get the, the chain of logic to say one of the most important institutions on earth for all its failings, and it can infuriate and disappoint us, uh, is the Republican Party. So. My political life, I was proud to be a Republican from the early days working for Nixon as a young guy just out of the Navy and not yet 30 years old until the opportunity to be in the Colorado Senate and be the presiding officer of the Senate uh, finishing in 2005 on term limits. But, but uh, one of the great moments in the early first year or two of Independence Institute, I Professor Barry Polston were here, he could chime in and because he was in the room when this happened. Polson and Andrews received a visit from then Colorado Senate President and Republican leader, Ted Strickland. Uh, rest his soul, he's gone now. The tax reform in Washington at the federal level in 1986 had created a, a terrific revenue windfall for the states. And it meant that states that uh, didn't lower their tax rate were suddenly going to, by leaving the rate where it was, on a much broader base of taxable income to the, uh, to the income tax with states following the lead of the federal government, 
all this money was going to rain down on Colorado state government and 49 other state governments unless tax rates were lowered. We're going through a bit of a cycle like that right now, aren't we? So Strickland, the Republican Senate leader, comes to Polson and Andrews, the think tank guys, and I forget the numbers, but he, he wanted us to peg, he, he, he wanted us to give him cover for pegging the um, new flat rate income tax at a level that would be a huge revenue capture to state government. A big honeypot that Republicans, um, whom I've just praised in the abstract, Republicans, no less than Democrats, began to salivate over, what if we could spend this money to feather our own nest politically? And Polson and Andrews faced the sort of a soul-defining moment where we we're gonna play ball and provide cover for the Republicans to do this revenue capture, or are we going to say, no, this is the way the numbers work out, Senator. And you, you can pass whatever bill you're able to get the votes to pass. Uh, more power to you. Uh, we're not here to oppose or support legislation. We never have been because that's not how you behave if you're a C3 a tax exempt organization. But we said, as far as us publishing something that would pretend to give you cover for an effective tax hike, that's not who we are. So I, I'd like to think that that was one of the defining moments from which uh, Independence Institute, soon to be 40 years old, uh, has, has never uh, wavered. We find ourselves in those situations quite often. Now it has changed. And we've had to call Republicans out on, on the carpet all the time. Because when Republicans are in control, and it's been a long time since that's happened, we find out they're still politicians. And politicians are motivated not by principle, but by more expedient matters like getting reelected. And that's part of, of, of the politics. And our job is to make it so that in order to get reelected, maybe you should do the right thing. And if we do our job right, it's easier to get reelected by doing the principled thing. That's been harder as the state has changed and the left has taken over the pillars of, of culture. And I believe, and I think you do too, that politics is far downstream of culture. Always. That, that, that politics is the lagging indicator of, of culture. I'm really curious. Let me ask you about this. You were there during the downfall of the Nixon administration. And we're seeing the remnants of what happened with the Trump administration and the afterburner effects still now. Both Republicans, I would argue that Trump, from a policy point of view, was much more impactful. That the reforms that happened under Trump were, I would even argue, transformational. Even though I think, from a personality, moral point of view, he's, he's a he's hot mess. Bingo. Uh, not a man to look up to, whereas Reagan was. Um, you left the, the Nixon administration. Give me just a little bit of insight. I had, I had no idea that you and, was it Haldeman or, or, uh, were, were so close? John, I mentioned earlier uh, my love affair with the uh, America's founding documents uh, imbued in me by, by good teachers when I was just a kid in St. Louis. Um, 
the time comes for me to uh, take my Navy uniform off. I served briefly as a submarine officer, which is an aspiration of mine because my dad had been aboard a submarine in the Pacific when there was hot war going on in World War II. My submarine experience did not involve anyone trying to sink us, thank God. Come up and see the sunlight and breathe the fresh air again. All is well. Get out of the Navy, a little ahead of schedule actually, because Nixon was cutting the defense budget. It was 69 and Nixon was trying to find a way to wind down the Vietnam War that he had inherited from Kennedy and Johnson. And through my uh, parents' church, the Christian Science Church, some of Nixon's top staffers were known to my dad uh, because these men also followed the Christian Science religion. One of them was uh, Nixon's chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, former advertising executive uh, uh, with uh, the uh, J. Walter Thompson Agency in LA. Another one was a Seattle lawyer, John Ehrlichman, who was Nixon's top domestic policy guy. Both of those men had sent their kids to my dad's summer camp for Christian science families in Buena Vista, Colorado. My dad was a networker before the term was ever invented. He was a great collector of, of relationships and, and he knew how to make things happen through those relationships and friendships. And as I was casting about for newspaper jobs on a faster timeline than I had prepared for getting out of the Navy, 1969, um, Ehrlichman heard about it from my dad uh, and uh, said, let me put young John's resume in front of some newspaper editors. I'd never met John Ehrlichman, uh, but uh, naturally I was glad to have uh, such a boost from high places, so I fired off my resume and, and uh, Ehrlichman acknowledged receiving it, and he said, by the way, I've also shown it to the White House press secretary. He may need to add a staffer. I thought that was hilarious. What qualification <laughs> did I remotely have to be on the White House staff? Well, one thing leads to another, and in early 1970, I joined Ron Ziegler's White House press office. How old were you? Not 25. Wow. Um, I was just a flunky a gopher at first. But my ability to put words together in a coherent sentence um, came to their attention. And uh, ultimately, after one year working in the press office, they needed um, someone to join the speechwriting staff, someone under 30, because Nixon wanted to be able to tell uh, the public that he was taking the advice of the younger generation at a time when the campuses were in turmoil, civil rights movement was rocking the country, anti-Vietnam protests were rocking the campuses. Uh, they wanted someone under 30 on the speechwriting staff. Uh, John Andrews gets the call. Again, I've had to pinch myself. What do I know about this? Well, I'm going to learn it as I go along. And I work with people like William Sapphire and uh, Pat Buchanan, uh, uh, John McLaughlin, Ben Stein. Uh, our boss, our chief speechwriter was Raymond Price. Great guy. Uh, but as the Watergate scandal uh, blew up, uh, I couldn't breathe that air anymore. I knew something was, was horribly wrong. And uh, I was somewhat politically naive, and my colleagues to whom I expressed my concerns almost, I think, had the inclination to pat me on the head and say, this is the way it happens in the big league, sonny boy. And uh, if, if it stinks a little bit, you just need to hold your nose and keep coming to work. The tricky thing is to be a speechwriter for someone whose policies and indeed whose character you have more and more trouble believing in. I, I could scarcely cash my paycheck with a good conscience because I'm feeling 
I'm not earning my money here. I'm, I'm not adding any value to President Nixon's effort to explain himself of how this mess in the Watergate scandal, um, illegal buggings and break-ins and plumbers uh, units and what have you, how all this happened. So I, I ended up making, a, I ended up deciding to quit. And uh, ultimately I concluded I wanted to give, give voice to what I had seen. I hadn't seen crimes committed. I hadn't seen <coughs> impeachable offenses, but I'd just seen a lot of stuff that stank. And certainly I was convinced that by omission of not doing enough, if not commission of what he may have affirmatively done, President Nixon had forfeited the presidency, quite ironic, after a 49-state landslide right. in 72, that by mid-73, they were already talking about invoking the impeachment powers of Congress uh, with Republicans uh, tagging along behind the Democrats in Congress to do that. So I ended up making the only public protest resignation off of Nixon's staff and being in the glare of national media attention for two or three months. How'd you do that? <clears throat> I started as a White House press staffer, early 70, as a White House speechwriter, early 71, and I was ready to bail out at the end of 73. The Saturday night massacre had happened whereby Nixon uh, fired the special prosecutor, Archibald Cox. That added fuel to the fire of calls for him, his impeachment. His vice president, Spiro Agnew, the former Maryland governor, was forced out in a bribery scandal. Never had we seen a resignation of the vice president before. We had never seen the Congress confirm a new pre vice president to that vacancy, the person of Gerald Ford. Um, and so Christmas of 73 was a tough time for me. I'd left the White House staff quietly, but I had all this stuff stewing and brewing inside of me. And I had the sense that I, that I wanted to bear witness in some small way to how, how do we restore integrity without partisan labels on it? How do we just restore character and integrity to the Oval Office? And I was convinced that if Nixon uh, didn't resign, he could and should be impeached. Uh, I wrote, wrote to that effect in the New York Times, the Washington Post. I was interviewed and made those statements on national television, CBS Morning News, uh, PBS Friday Evening News Hour with Paul Duke. And you were just a kid. The uh, Newsweek's My Turn column in the back of the Newsweek magazine every week. Yeah, I was, uh, I was by then not quite 30 years old, and here I was uh, in this howling uh, storm, this maelstrom of people uh, scratching and clawing to either be rid of or to preserve the elected president of the United States. To this day, I don't know if I did the right thing, John. Yeah, I was going to ask you. How do you know if you did the right thing? Which is, as a young politico, you seal your fate that I don't want to hire this guy as my speechwriter because as a politician, I want somebody who's going to go down with the, in the ship with yeah, me. Yeah, they need team players. Yeah, I need somebody who's And that uh, who, was really not, a, that was not a concern for me in evaluating whether I'd done the right thing because I was confident I could find satisfying work back in newspapers and media where, in fact, I had aspired to begin before the sort of detour in my career, this magic wand thing that got me on the White House staff and I'm pinching myself, could this be real? I was confident that there would be work for me and I'd be able to support my little family. Um, I ended up coming here to Denver and uh, went to work for my dad helping run his summer camp and, and Christian Science Youth Organization in 100 cities across the country. 
No, when I say I'm not sure I did the right thing, it goes much deeper than that. Because the crowd I threw in with when I said Nixon should resign or be impeached were people who opposed everything that I stood for and that Nixon had stood for in being elected with that 49-state landslide. It was the left. They had hated Nixon ever since he helped expose the depth and, uh, and degree and seriousness of communist uh, subversion and penetration of Washington, D.C. in the 1940s. They, they wanted to destroy Nixon by fair or foul uh, with, and was destroying him through forcing him to leave office in August 1974. Was that fair or foul? And we could be here for hours discussing that. But so honestly, I, I feel as though... Uh, until I face the Lord on Judgment Day, I'll never really know if I was part of making things worse for America by empowering the left that wanted to be rid of Nixon or making things better for America by, as I so idealistically said a moment ago, let's get integrity, regardless of party label, back into the Oval Office. How much integrity did we get as we went downstream through Democrats from Jimmy Carter, who was incompetent, but not a bad man, to Bill Clinton, to Barack Obama, to uh, Joe Biden, uh, none of whom are exemplars of character at all and whose policies are 180 degrees opposed to everything you and I would die and bleed for. And let me bring you fast forward to the last Republican president because the similarities and the questions are kind of the same. Here you have a man with a terrible moral character, who... Tomcat. It's not that even as much as... I remembered Nixon as a kid, but I didn't understand it. I mean, I, can, I remember the pictures, I remember the resignation speech, but I had no context. Yeah. It seemed to me that Nixon was saving himself before saving the country, that he wanted to save his own legacy, he wanted to save his own power. Trump, I don't think, cares about the country nearly as much as he cares about himself. And the revenge tour that is his reelection bid uh, now, I don't get a sense that it is about um, what is best for America. I think it's about getting even for everyone who has slandered him. And I worry about the exact same things. I did not like Trump when he ran the first time. I held my nose. When I saw the incredible policy changes he was making, I reluctantly was impressed and said, as, as odorous as this guy is, He's getting things done. He's lowering the tax rate. He's signing the right bills. He's making the right appointments. He's picking the right judges. This is incredible. After January 6th, it's hard to look at this man and his behavior since and go, you know, this, is, this is the guy who's going to be able to repeat that should he get uh, elected again. So do you feel any similarity? Do you feel as an American that you're right back again, where you were in your late 20s or, or 30, and you've got to make this tough call. Do you, do you support the guy because he might be our only choice, 
or do you do you write the article and do the interviews and and use your voice and go we can't do this i mean are you in the same situation there are a lot of similarities but john um Ultimately, it's binary, and th this is where I struggle, as I tried to explain a moment ago, with the uh, impact of my own actions. I know what my motives were in siding with those who wanted Nixon out. But when I look objectively at the impact of having him forced out, having uh, disempowered and, uh, and stained the Republican Party and brand, empowered and glorified unjustly the liberal democrat brand um, like i say it'll be judgment day before i'm really sure i did i was siding with the right people there but here we are in 23 and 24 with tough choices to make and it is again as it was in 2016 a binary choice as it was in 2020 do you want hillary clinton or donald trump and everything they bring with them in 2016. I don't for a moment regret having supported Donald Trump uh, with some of the same reservations that you just expressed and you're having supported him. Likewise, in 2020, do you want Joe Biden and everything that comes with him or Donald Trump? And again, I'm glad I supported Trump. Is the Democrat nominee uh, going to be Joe Biden? Is it going to be uh, by default a Gavin Newsom or a, even a, a Michelle Obama. Um, it's not likely to be Kamala Harris. She's just shown her unfitness to play at the highest level uh, in her uh, failed vice presidency. But ultimately, it's another binary choice that we face in 24. If uh, the historic collapse, uh, it would be truly an unprecedented historic collapse of Donald Trump's uh, strong support and huge margins in the polls should lead to someone else being the Republican nominee. Uh, if you and I were to sit down a year from now and that's how things looked in July 2024 with someone other than Trump at the head of the Republican ticket, um, I know you're not a partisan guy, but you and I would probably have no difficulty saying, yes, let's elect a Ron DeSantis or let's elect uh, Tim Scott or let's elect Nick, Nikki Haley, whoever it is. Um, but if it happens to be Donald Trump, as it probably is going to be Donald Trump, honestly, I wouldn't have much problem, uh, despite all the ways he embarrassed himself and us and screwed things up the first time around. Because it's a binary choice, because uh, America is the beacon of the world, as I said a moment ago, um, and you, you either got to choose the R brand or the D brand. I'm going to choose the R no matter who it is. Just make sure I'm hearing you, though. He still would not be your first choice for that R brand. No. If, if there is, no. you, you would prefer somebody else, uh, a, a different R. Absolutely, yeah. All right. Bring it back to Colorado for me, because what you started in Colorado and, and built all around, around the the country with state-based think tanks and organizations. Colorado has changed. It is, it is not- Unrecognizably, yeah. Unrecognizably. And it, as, a, as a kid who grew up here, it's heartbreaking. Uh, yeah, we had problems back then, but the, still the backbone of the state was one that respected people's individual liberties. It respected people's right to start a business 
to have financial relationships with other people, for people to write their own biography, to make their own decisions. That seems to be completely gone now. I'd like to think it's not gone forever, but I see that we are moving towards collectivism at a much faster rate than California ever has. In fact, I think California might be turning the other direction, that it is bottoming out economically, that it's so unsustainable. They might run through collapse and rebirth towards freedom much faster than Colorado. Give me a prediction. Well, that's an interesting speculation, I, uh, and I see your point. Um, but uh, there is a cycle. Um, as long as America remains a relatively free country, um, there's always going to be uh, one group of people in the political marketplace, let's call it, saying, here's what government can do for you and polarized opposite to them, there will be another group of people who are saying, I know and fear what government can do to me. Uh, those are roughly right now corresponding to the Democrat brand and the Republican brand, but uh, you, can, you can go back in, uh, in American history or project Im imaginatively forward uh, in what is to come, and whatever the names are, as long as we're free at all, there are going to be some who say, never mind what government can do for me. Uh, there's a worm in that apple. Uh, the, the promise is going to ultimately uh, be, prove false or even toxic to me. So I'm more concerned about what government can do to me, and I don't want so darn much government. We're going to find a way to put the brakes on. And uh, I take courage in um, whatever years I have left. I'm in my 80th year. I take courage for as long as I can be part of uh, the, the resistance that is saying, yes, there is a better way to govern Colorado. We proved it before. We can prove it again if, the, if we just allow the U.S. Constitution to mean what it says. And that's the beauty of the Supreme Court appointments that Trump was able to put through with the help of Mitch McConnell and the Republican Senate. If we let the U.S. Constitution mean what it says, if we dust off the state constitution, I love it that Dave Kopel from here at Independence Institute uh, is doing some of the important intellectual work to, to help people remember Colorado has a state constitution. It's, it's way too fat. It's shockingly a thick document compared to the, the slender uh, uh, elegance of the U.S. Constitution. But if only Colorado's Supreme Court would remember that we have a constitution. Well, if only uh, I had uh, succeeded with judicial term limits when we had it on the ballot in 2006. Um, yeah, we could do a lot of if only, John, but the fact, the fact remains, uh, the U.S. Constitution and the Colorado Constitution can be reasserted. And that's, one of the, that's what I love about uh, the uh, faithful uh, guard that Independence Institute keeps on the ramparts of freedom, not just a guard on defense, but playing offense when you can, sallying forth against the enemy. Um, if we want to use that old-time imagery, um, we are going through a period of uh, feels like wilderness times, but I think we can reach better times if we keep the faith. Looking back at all these things that you've done, from being a, from a camp counselor, to being a <laughs> newspaper man, to being a submariner, to being a think tank guy, 
to being a politician, to being the president of the state senate, to launching a think tank, to launching another think tank, the Centennial Institute, to going down to Texas to help the Texas Public Policy Foundation uh, uh, launch, which is now such an incredibly successful... Are you talking about three or four different guys? No, I'm talking about one guy. Um, and Makes me feel 180, not just 80. I mean, you've done all these remarkable <laughs> things. Which one are you most proud of? Uh, I'm not sure I'd use the word proud. I, Which I, one did you have the most fun doing? Well, the, the most satisfaction uh, that I take in, in uh, looking back at life uh, is uh, th that I had the, the good sense as an idealistic, uh, in many ways naive and inexperienced uh, college kid of age 20 or 21 to pick out a beautiful blonde from Bakersfield, <laughs> California, named Donna Devlin, uh, of whom I uh, wasn't worthy, uh, but uh, God's grace has shown me in, in uh, the, the partnership that she and I have had for 50-some years. And the, the, the three great kids we've raised, our daughters, Tina and Jennifer, and our son, Daniel. Uh, Daniel, the uh, Denver police officer that you know. Um, the, and this, this comes back around to the whole reason we have uh, America and Colorado as one of its states, and we have those constitutions that we were just talking about. Because if we can preserve the scope of freedom for somebody like John Andrews and Donna Devlin to get together and say, let's have a family, let's build a life, let's buy a house, let's plant our flag there and, and stay under the same roof for 50 years, um, which most Americans in our sort of nomadic culture can't say they had the opportunity to do. Just as long as, as the, the zone of liberty uh, and civility and creativity can be preserved uh, so that my kids and their kids, uh, my grandson, Young Ian, is, attends Colorado Christian University now, a generation after generation of Americans can have at least some version of these opportunities, no matter how technology changes the challenges we face or, or narrows our options or seduces us into self-destructive behavior patterns. I don't need to tell you, this has been your mantra all your, your, your adult life. Freedom has the magical possibility that it lets human beings accomplish astounding, uh, beautiful, uh, important things. For me, it's been building a family and a marriage uh, that I'm the proudest of. Second to that, it would be those think tanks that you enumerated. Really five of them, the Shavano Institute of Hillsdale College, right. Independence Institute, taking a year to help Texas Public Policy Foundation move onward towards becoming the tremendous powerhouse that it has become in Austin, Texas now, um, in steering to the right one of America's most important states, prosperous, innovative, populous states. Texas Public Policy. Uh, and of course, Centennial. The Claremont Institute uh, right. State Relations Office, uh, uh, Claremont Institute in California asked me to do things for them in Colorado and across the 50 states after I'd been Senate president. And a Centennial Institute with the Western Conservative Summit over at, Hills, over at Colorado Christian University. Those five policy institutes that I've had a chance to found or just lead uh, 
very, very gratifying to me. I've, I've really loved the run. And it's far from over. The fact that I'm, now let me clarify, when I said 80th year, I'm not 80 yet. Uh, but let's not rush it, please. But, uh, between now and 100, there's still a few good things I think I can accomplish for God and country. So I'll check back with you uh, as 100 uh, continues to approach closer. Uh, I got to thank you, as I always do. Um, without Independence Institute, I would not have gotten involved in the things I have. I would never have run for the RTD board, which was the greatest education I've ever had. I would not have found my voice. I would not have been doing any of these things. And without you as a friend and mentor, I don't know if I would have survived some of life's greater and uglier challenges. So um, uh, thank you so much. There's gonna be an important page in Colorado's history when it's written with your name on it, John. I'm I hope they can just retouch the photo so it's a little <laughs> handsomer than the mug that I'm looking at right now. John, thank you so much. Always a pleasure, my friend. If you've enjoyed this episode of Devil's Advocate, I hope you'll share it with a friend. And I hope you'll subscribe and follow the show. We have new ones released weekly. Remember, this audio was taken from our TV show. To watch it, just search the letters IITV for Independence Institute TV on YouTube for this and many other great conversations.